back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today we are working through our third episode in a subseries entitled When We Do as the Gentiles. So far we've taken a look at what it looks like to marry Christianity and government by seeing the first marriage of these two things with Constantine and a later iteration of that marriage in the Crusades. Today I want to explore a third iteration by looking at the marriage of the state as seen in the Reformation. Before we get into the episode proper, let me note something of importance here. I am a Reformed Christian. Now that doesn't mean I'm an expert on today's topic or that I don't have any biases. I just think that I have a unique perspective to offer since I'm not an Anabaptist who stereotypically, and understandably, as we'll see, hates Reformed people. A Reformed pacifist is almost as crazy as a Reformed Arminian, with the latter being an impossibility and the the former barely squeezing into possibilities skinny jeans. It's a tight fit, but you can see other Reformed pacifists in Preston Sprinkle and maybe Charles Spurgeon. I'm not sure about him. Not completely sure. So that's pretty much it. That's my list. I don't know anyone else who is a Reformed pacifist, though I'm sure they do exist. I also want to note that one of the main resources I'm using here is Leonard Verduin. Now, Verduin was extremely critical of the Reformers, even writing a book called Reformers and Their Stepchildren, which is all about how the Reformers were pretty terrible people, how they had terrible magisterial theology, and how the Christians they persecuted were way better than the Reformers. Verduin also wrote the foremost work on Menno Simmons and was an expert on him during his lifetime. Now, that might make it seem like Verduin is a pretty biased source here, as he comes across as some crazy Anabaptist who has a vendetta against the Reformers. However, Verduin grew up Dutch Reformed, went to Calvin College, and pastored under the CRC, the Christian Reformed Church, throughout his life. I don't know if Verduin was a pacifist, and some of the things that he says makes me think that he wasn't. However, like Spurgeon and Sprinkle, Verduin is someone who seems like he's able to identify and speak unpopular truths to his own group. He's not a court prophet, And those are exactly the types of prophets that I love and that we need. Of course, Verduin's background doesn't mean that he's right, but I want you to be aware that I'm not cherry-picking Anabaptist resources here against the Reformers, but rather I'm considering those who have cared about their group so much as to not be silent about its problems and blind spots. Brushing problems under the rug doesn't make anyone or anything better. So today, here's me taking pot shots at my own group in hopes that we can repent of our past atrocities and figure out where to go from here. So let's dive in. Today I'm going to be using the word reformers a lot. But I'm going to mean something very specific by it, and I might not always qualify it. The Reformation is often thought of as being this thing that guys like Luther and Zwingli led, and, I mean, to an extent, that's right. But the Reformation was also much broader than that. The Reformation included the stereotypical Reformation leaders and groups, but it also encompassed Anabaptist group leaders. If you start reading a lot about the Reformation, you'll end up hearing about two different Reformations, the Magisterial Reformation and the Radical Reformation. The Radical Reformation is named such because it sought to go beyond what the Reformers ended up doing. The Radical Reformers saw that the evils which abounded were baked into the hierarchies and relationships of church and state which led to not only a licentious clergy and populace, this invisible church, but which also led to a great violence and persecution. The radical reformers sought to jettison the sacral tendencies of the church and state 
by tearing down Augustine's delineation of an invisible and visible church. We can know believers by their fruit, and only those who continue to display the fruit which indicates their abiding in the vine of Christ should remain in the church. So the radical reformers were largely against participation in the state, against the use of weapons to harm others, against lax church discipline, and against baptizing infants, the thing for which they may be most well known for and from which they get their names, the Anabaptists. The Magisterial Reformation, on the other hand, is the branch of the Reformation with which most of us are familiar. That word magisterial here simply refers to the magistracy, or secular civil government. So leaders like Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli ended up opting to wed together the church and state. Now while I'm sure the pressure and motivation here, uh, I'm sure there were many huge pressures and motivations, My take is that a magisterial reform was opted for in large part because it was deemed a necessary power play. I mean, just think about it. What saved Luther from being executed by the church? A prince. Secular government, right? The Catholic Church had its tendrils all up in the various governments of Europe, and it had a lot of power. As the magisterial reformers saw Reformation picking up, something which Luther hadn't originally intended to happen, but eventually they saw that it was— they were faced with some pragmatic decisions. How do we keep this good thing going and protect God from the evils which the Catholic Church has brought about and will continue to perpetuate through the sword? Well, the only way to do that seemed to be to embrace the secular government, because no secular government is going to defend a group which won't fight for it and scratch its back. If they start criticizing um, the magistracy, the government, no government's going to back them up, And if they don't have a government to back them up, who's going to protect them from the the Catholic Church? Who's going to protect them from persecution? Again, while I'm sure there were a number of reasons the magisterial reformers made the decisions that they did, I'm convinced that a big part of it was consequentialist way of thinking. Right? Ends justify the means. We've got to do what's going to be pragmatic. Now hopefully you're not surprised by that, because consequentialism is the beast which rears its ugly head time and time again, when we find compromise in the church. Nobody embodies the evidence for this consequentialist ethic better than Zwingli himself. Now, Zwingli had adhered to, or at least was extremely sympathetic, to many of the Anabaptist doctrines initially, until it became clear to him that a relationship with the state would be safer and more beneficial. When he changed sides, he did so with great fervor, becoming the first and one of the most staunch prosecutors of Anabaptists. In my opinion, it's, it's kind of like those televangelists who have sex problems, screaming out the loudest about how bad sex is. Right? The diversion of attention away from oneself and the villainization of another was the best way for Zwingli to avoid ideologies he, he had dropped earlier uh, in his life in order to be pragmatic. pragmatic. Thus, Zwingli, uh, he became a proponent of what he and others vulgarly referred to as a third baptism for Anabaptists, making light of the method in which many Anabaptists were executed by being drowned. So to put this in perspective here, because I, I think sometimes it you get callous to it because you're like, well, I mean, that's just what people did, right? That's what you know people in that culture did, which we addressed in the last episode, but But even still, I want you to think about this. I want you to go imagine yanking an Amish person out of a buggy and going over to the the pond and and dunking their head into the water and holding them under until they die while the Amishmen 
doesn't try to kill you for doing that. And just go drown an Amishman. Or go into a local Baptist congregation as they are technically Anabaptists as well. Though you might want to be packing if you do that because Baptists don't have the same reservations about killing you. Um, and I want you to go bring a Baptist brother or sister out and go dunk their head in the toilet until they drown. While nobody should be drowned, you have to understand that we're not talking about child-sacrificing, orgiastic groups of people that are being drowned here. We're talking about the equivalent of Baptists, Amish, and Mennonites being drowned by fellow Christians. It's sick. Now, this doesn't even scratch the surface of, of the horrors that were done and of just how terrible the magisterial reformers were and, and how much they persecuted people. Uh, so I want to recommend to you that you find Verdun's book, Anatomy of a Hybrid, and specifically about the Reformation, The Stepchildren of the Reformation. And the, the, the second one, the second book is going to be a little bit harder to read and a bit less interesting, but it's specifically about the Reformation and, and is going to give you lots of dirt on, on all of the main players. He'll give you plenty of information which you can follow down rabbit trails and, and do further research. But as we think about the wickedness of the magisterial reformers in regard to their murderous savagery in the name of Jesus, I want you to hear this quote from Verduin. Quote, Two swords belong to Peter. One is in his hand, the other is at his command whenever it is needful to draw it. Both the spiritual and material sword belong to the church. The latter sword is drawn for the church, the former by the church. One belongs to the priest and the other to the soldiery but this one is drawn at the orders of the priest. By this colossal piece of sophistry, the church made herself believe that she could order the lifeblood of men to be let, and all the while getting none of it on her skirt. So Verduin there is quoting one of the reformers, and the reformer is basically saying, hey look, uh, the, the, church can, um, the church can basically take command of the spiritual and material sword. And Verduin's like, you guys are just idiots because... Um, you know, basically, you believe that that you can draw the sword and start slashing people without staining yourself, and that's just not how it works. So the magisterial reformers did what uh, what was done ever since the age of Constantine, and they started to persecute the people that they didn't like, and the people in particular who messed with their sacralism. It wasn't the debauched clergy that they tried to execute; it was the people who didn't baptize their children. Because, again, their communities, like communist communities, atheist communities, it, it relies on people all building into this same house of cards. And if you start playing even with, with uh, cards that don't seem all that important, the whole house will crumble if you let it crumble, uh, if, if you let somebody remove one card. So infant baptism was huge. Not being a proponent of the state was huge. The house of cards will fall if the state doesn't have support. So how much did the church really reform under the magisterial reform? It certainly did in some significant theological ways, but how much did it reform to look like Jesus in the world? Not that much. The reformers' embrace of Calvinism and Augustine's visible and invisible church left church discipline and changed lives on the wayside, as did the Catholic sacralists. Verduin documents numerous quotes of interrogators who acknowledged that the life of the Anabaptists was markedly different, while the lives of most in the church 
as everyone was was really part of the church, right? The visible church. Their lives were terrible. Likewise, relations with brothers and sisters in the fractured church in Europe worsened, and centuries of wars ensued between the nations in Europe, often as a result of or encouraged by religion. For all the good that the Reformation may have done theologically, we owe to it and to the sacral Catholic religion millions upon millions of deaths all the way up to and through World War II until Europe decided to throw off God and war at the same time. How ironic is it that secularizing Europe pacified Europe? All it took was to stop being Christian and Europe stopped killing each other. We could spend many, many hours on the horrors of the Reformation and the ungodly character displayed, from the savagery of Zwingli and the anti-Semitism of Luther to the bloodlust of the people. But for that, I recommend uh, also Dan Carlin's episode on execution and torture. I think it's called something like painfotainment, but I'll, um, I'll link that in the notes below. It's, it's pretty horrendous, but it gives you a picture of what Christians were doing to people. Uh, And when you compare this to the early church quotes about not even being able to see men justly put to death um, back, you know, when they were barbarians and right after the time of Christ when when men just didn't know any better, right? They're saying they can't even bear to see somebody put to death. Now all of a sudden you get to Christian, quote, Christian Europe, and the things that they're doing to people are just insane. So this Reformation reformed some theology. It didn't reform people to look like Jesus, Um, which begs the question, how important is that theology if it doesn't make you look like Jesus? We could say it's pretty important, but it's certainly not top tier. All right, so instead of spending the remainder of our time kind of looking at the, the tortures of the Reformation since you can go look at, at Dan Carlin. He, he takes a broader look than just the Reformation, but you know he'll definitely cover that area. I want to throw in one last jab at the magisterial aspect of the Reformation. I found it really interesting that the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the standard that we use in my church, has changed ever so slightly over the past few hundred years. But where it has changed, there are some significant things that I think we can draw from it. So listen here to the original section, I believe it's 23, chapter 23, on magistrates, written in 1647. Quote, The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments, or the powers of the key of the kingdom of heaven. Yet he hath authority, and it is his duty, to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies are suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed, for the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods, to be present at them, and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. Man, that's uh, some pretty significant power of God there that, that the, the king or the leader has, right? I mean, they can call synods, basically persecute people who they think aren't, aren't doing what they're supposed to, um, particularly blasphemies and heresies. Uh, we don't get, get or, or worship, right? All these things that deal with the sacralism, with, um, 
with belief and structure of the church, not things which deal with um, life, living living life out, bearing fruit as a Christian. So, man, the, the, the king has a lot of it, it, has their hands deep into the church, deep. Now, interestingly, that section was completely rewritten. It was rewritten for the American version of the confession. And, interestingly, ironically, it was rewritten in like 1788, 1789, something around there. You know, right around the, the Constitution there. So I, w- I want you to listen to the changes here. Quote, Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the powers of the key of the kingdom of heaven or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with let or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians, according to their own profession and belief. It is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered, either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity, to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. End quote. Wow, big changes there, huh? It looks like pragmatism doesn't skip generations because the American Protestants came by it honestly. It wouldn't do to have the Westminster Confession stand as it was originally written while trying to do God's work in establishing the new promised land, after we killed the heathen and took it from them, of course. We threw that section a section which was the backbone of the Reformation, you know, the aspect for for which that branch was named, the magisterial reform, we threw it out when it didn't suit. Now, I'm glad we threw that out, but it didn't do us much good because now we have come to partition our Christianity. We think that we can do some things for the state and some things for God. At least the magisterial reformers recognized the fluidity of God's reign overall and in all, even if their application was severely misguided and extremely violent. The magisterial reformers, at least, you know, they thought that God and government go together. They just thought that God looked more like Gentile government, right? Um, But today, we've kind of thrown that out and said, no, we can do one thing in the political sphere and one thing for God. Maybe that's a step in the right direction. I mean, we're not killing and torturing people, so I guess that's good. But um, it's still it's still way off. We have one more step to take, and that is to realize that we do not need to rule like the Gentiles do, but that God has his kingdom, and we live in it, and we don't need the Gentile kingdom. So I'll just leave this episode at that, which will, I think, make a nice segue for our final episode in this subseries as we explore ruling like the Gentiles do in the United States. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it.
This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.